Well, during the summer, we've been looking at the life of Joseph in what we call the Old Testament, and we've reached uh, the part in Joseph's life when we're going to look at uh, how a particular subject that is huge works out in the life of Joseph. And that topic is that of forgiveness. And the reality is that you and I live in a society, a culture, a world where perhaps there has never been as much need for forgiveness. We live in a society which is increasingly divided, a place that's increasingly polarized, a people where oppose one another for various reasons, whether it's over Brexit or Scottish independence or whether people like this shirt or whether they don't. Uh, it polarizes people into two different camps. Social media is where people only seemingly are friends with or tagged by people that they agree with. We find it often difficult to listen to people whose opinion we disagree with. And yet forgiveness is right at the heart of the Christian faith. I wonder if, like me, you watched the BBC News website this week and saw an amazing interview with this guy, Gilbert Anchondo. Gilbert Anchondo is a father whose son and daughter-in-law were both shot dead in the shootings in El Paso in Texas last week. Gilbert's son, Andre, and his wife, Jordan, were both shot dead in the Walmart store, leaving two small children behind. And the next day, Gilbert appeared on numerous news outlets being asked, how do you feel about what has happened? And he responded with these remarkable words. He said, the aggressor could be my son. I forgive him because he was not in his senses. I'm a great believer, and I forgive what he did. Incredibly powerful words within 24 hours of his son and daughter-in-law being shot in one of an increasing number of mass shootings that's happening in the US. And yet because of his Christian faith, Gilbert Anchondo chose to forgive, chose to forgive the man who had shot his son, shot his daughter-in-law, and made his grandchildren orphans. Forgiveness is right at the heart of the Christian faith. In the middle of the Lord's Prayer, we're taught by Jesus to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. But forgiveness is not easy. Forgiveness is tough. Forgiveness is challenging. Forgiveness is demanding. Forgiveness is not an easy option. None of us know whether faced with that situation like Gilbert and Chondo, whether we would respond in the same way. We might hope that we might, but the reality is that until you and I are placed, hopefully never, in a situation like that, we don't know how we would react. We don't know what words would come from our lips. We don't know 
what we would feel inside. It was the writer C.S. Lewis who said that everybody thinks forgiveness is a good idea until they have someone to forgive. We can hold it out as an aspiration. We can hold it up as a value. We can say that's a fantastic virtue in people and in our society until we are faced with that situation, until we're faced with that person at work, until we're faced with that person in our office, until we're faced with that person at school, until we're faced with that person at college or university, or until we're faced with that person in our family or our friendship circle or where a relationship breaks down. Forgiveness sounds a good idea until we have someone to forgive. And then it becomes something very different, something very, very challenging. As I say, we've reached the stage in the story of the life of Joseph when it would have been understandable if faced with the situation that Joseph is now faced with, he would have got his own back on his brothers. We've heard over the past few weeks how Joseph was an incredibly arrogant, entitled teenager, but also very gifted. How he managed to alienate and offside the whole of his family to the degree that all his brothers wanted him dead and eventually they sold him into slavery. Trafficked to Egypt, he was thrown into prison even though he was unjustly accused of rape. And now because of the gift that God had given him, that ability to interpret dreams, he finds himself as prime minister of the most powerful nation on earth, Egypt. Only one man, Pharaoh, is above him. And he guides Egypt through seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine, just as the dreams that Pharaoh had had years before predicted. And Joseph manages Egypt through the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine with such incredible adroit skill that news starts to reach the other nations around Egypt because they too are affected by the famine, that Egypt is a place where you can go and get food. Egypt is a place where you can go and get help. Egypt is a place of generosity, even if you're a refugee. And so Jacob, the father of the family, instructs Joseph's brothers to leave Canaan and go to Egypt in order to ask for help, in order to beg for food so that the family doesn't starve to death. Now, for whatever reason, we don't know. Maybe it has been 20, 30 years since uh, Joseph's brothers have, have seen him. Remember, they think he's dead, perhaps, or at least sold into slavery. They cannot conceive of the fact that their brother, whom they sold into slavery, is now the prime minister, prime minister of Egypt. And so for whatever reason, they don't recognize Joseph, and Joseph doesn't reveal himself to them. But this was the moment when Joseph surely could have taken revenge on his brothers. This was the moment when Joseph could have had them cast into prison. This was the moment when Joseph could have just flicked his fingers and they would have been executed by his command. Joseph doesn't do that. 
Joseph could have taken retribution. Joseph could have taken revenge. But Joseph decides not to do that. He decides to test his brothers. He does have them thrown into prison for three days, but primarily to see if they've changed and to see if they've learnt. And as he hears their reaction to what's going on, he hears and realises that they are different people. Something over the decades has changed in them, but also something has changed in Joseph. He's no longer that entitled, arrogant teenager. Now he is a wise politician who is prime minister of the most powerful nation on earth. And as he listens to the reports that are coming out of the prison, he realizes that something has happened. His brothers are different. They have changed. But he gives them this one final test. He puts this silver cup in the sack of the youngest brother Benjamin and he hides it all right at least he asks his his servant to hide it and then sends them away and then sends his servant after the brothers and they discover the sack with the silver cup in the sack they've already agreed that whosoever sack is where the cup is found that person will have to return to the court of Egypt and face imprisonment, if not slavery, if not death. And Judah, the eldest brother, starts to plead on behalf of the life of Benjamin. And what we see is that Joseph has decided not to enter into what one writer, Louis Smedes, has referred to as the escalator of vengeance. Something has happened in Joseph and in his thinking and in his heart. Smedes writes this about vengeance. Vengeance, he says, is a passion to get even. It's a hot desire to give back as much pain as someone gave you. But the problem with revenge is that it never gets what it wants. It never evens the score. Fairness never comes. The chain reaction set off by every act of vengeance always takes its unhindered course. It ties both the injured and the injurer to an escalator of pain. Both are stuck on the elevator as long as parity is demanded, and the escalator never stops. It never lets anyone off. It's an incredibly powerful picture of what vengeance actually does to the two people involved, as each of them seek for revenge, retribution against the other. Smead says it's like being on a never-ending escalator. You just go round and round and round, and you're trapped in it. And actually, it never achieves the purpose that you set out for. You never actually feel better about yourself. You never actually feel better about the other person because both of you are trapped on this escalator of vengeance. And Joseph decides to do something different. Joseph decides to act and respond differently towards his brothers. And as we'll see next week in the concluding chapter of the life of Joseph, Joseph decides Radio Mike is coming and going, but we'll keep going. But he decides to forgive his brothers. And what is revealing at the end of Je- when his brother 
has his brother. I'm going to go to this one, Grant, which is number three, and we'll hopefully try with that one. What happens, we're having some problems because we think a festival show is on our network and has pinched our channel. But because we're talking about forgiveness, we've got to forgive them and we're not allowed to take vengeance of them, but we are going to find who they are, we are going to find who, where they live, and we're going to... No, we're not. Um, but Joseph decides to forgive his brothers. But as we'll look at next week, when his father Jacob dies, what's revealed is that the people who really struggle with forgiveness is not Joseph, it's not Jacob, but it's actually the brothers. Because what becomes abundantly clear, as we'll see next week, is that even though Joseph has forgiven his brothers, the brothers can't forgive themselves. And they also can't believe that Joseph has forgiven them. But that's for next week. A few years ago, I came across a book by a guy called R.T. Kendall. At the time uh, that R.T. Kendall wrote it, he was the minister of uh, quite a large church in central London, Westminster Chapel. But something had happened in the life of R.T. Kendall that had meant that he was uh, shunned and ostracized by a whole group of people uh, within a section of Christianity. He took this really, really hard. And um, he was quite angry about it and quite bitter about it. And then one day, he was uh, in the vestry, the room, uh, sort of, we have one through there that we pray in before we uh, come out uh, to do the... And as he was praying in the, the vestry on that particular occasion, um, what happened was um, that a friend just looked at him and said, R.T., you will have to forgive them. And R.T. Kendall, I'll, I'll try on the left of mic and see if we... Okay, we'll go with that one. <laughs> means I'll be stuck completely behind this lectern, but there we go. Um, Artie, he said, you'll have to forgive them. And Artie Kendall says that he looked at his friend and said, why? And his friend said, because if you don't forgive them, Artie, the person who will suffer most is you. And Artie Kendall, who at the time was a very well-known preacher, he had a sort of worldwide preaching ministry and wrote books about the Christian faith, really struggled with the idea of forgiveness. And so he started to look into what forgiveness was and what forgiveness wasn't. And he came up with these definitions of what forgiveness is and what forgiveness isn't. Artie Kendall says this about what forgiveness isn't. Forgiveness isn't approving of what the person has done. When you forgive somebody, it doesn't mean that you approve of what they did, of what happened. Neither does it mean excusing what they did. It doesn't mean justifying what happened. It doesn't mean not pardoning what someone said. And neither does forgiveness mean reconciliation. You can forgive somebody without necessarily being reconciled to them. It might be that as we start to think about the subject of forgiveness this evening, the person that you think about, whom you have not forgiven, has actually died. 
It might have been a parent, it might have been a grandparent, it might have been a teacher, it might have been somebody in your past. And actually, it's physically impossible now for you to be reconciled to them. But you can still forgive them. Because fundamentally and primarily, forgiveness actually is about how it affects you, not how it affects the other person. Neither, Artie Kendall says, is forgiveness about denial. It's not denying what happened. It's not denying the consequences of what happened. It's not denying the hurt that you feel or the anger that you've experienced. Neither is forgiveness about forgetting what happened. In fact, you might have to choose to remember or be helped to remember in order to forgive. And neither is forgiveness about ignoring the pain. So forgiveness is not approving of what happened. It's not excusing what they did. It's not justifying what happened. It's not pardoning what someone did. It's not about reconciliation. It isn't denying the repercussions and the consequences. And it's not forgetting what happened. Indeed, it might be that we need to remember in order to forgive. And neither is it about taking less seriously the pain and the wrong and the hurt. And what we see in the life of Joseph is forgiveness. In the way that he responds to his brothers. In the way that he acts towards his brothers. We see actually what forgiveness is. And this is what R.T. Kendall concluded that forgiveness means. Forgiveness is being fully aware of what somebody has done and yet still choosing to forgive them. Secondly, forgiveness is a conscious choice to keep no record of wrongs. Thirdly, forgiveness is a desire to keep it quiet. I don't know about you, but if somebody hurts me, if somebody wrongs me, I can say that I've forgiven them. But when somebody else asks me about that person or about that situation or about what happened, it is so tempting to make sure that that person knows how deeply I was hurt how badly that person acted, what they really said, how outrageous it was and how innocent I am. That's really tempting. But a desire to keep things quiet, not to re-feel. If you think about the word resentment, it literally means from the French, ressentiment, re-feel. That's at the heart of resentment, if you resentment, if you resent something, you want to feel it all over again. And there's a, a part of us that almost enjoys going back through the pain and feeling it again. Artie Kendall says if you've forgiven somebody, you don't want to re-feel that pain. Fourthly, forgiveness is about wanting the person actually to forgive themselves. You allow the person to save face. You don't tell other people what that person did. But also forgiveness is sustained and maintained. 
It isn't a question of, yes, I forgive, but then choosing the next day to feel again how you felt before. Forgiveness has to be a deliberate choice each and every day. And R.T. Kendall in his book, Total Forgiveness, says that he realizes the first person to experience delight when forgiveness takes place is the one who forgives. You see, as you release somebody else from the anger and the bitterness and the pain and the injustice that you have felt at their hands, the first person who experiences release is not the person that you choose to forgive. But the first person who experiences release is you. Because you experience that release as you release the other person, as you choose to forgive them. And if we say that we're a Christian, if we say that we follow Jesus Christ, if we say, as Dom and Bryony have said already this evening, that they want to put Jesus first in their lives, then forgiveness is not an option for you and for me. Forgiveness is not something that's in any doubt for us. The challenge is only how we will forgive and when we will forgive. Because we are called to forgive, because we have been forgiven. There's that implication in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins, even as we forgive those who sin against us that if we don't forgive other people's sins, then something will be damaged in our relationship with God. Our ultimate salvation, our knowledge of God, will not be affected, but it will have consequences for how God relates to us and we relate to God because of how we relate to other people. We are called to live lives of forgiveness because we know what it is to be forgiven. Because we follow a person, Jesus, who as he was on the cross, as the nails were put through his wrists and through his feet, said, Father, forgive them. And what came out of the person of Jesus on the cross was forgiveness. And so if we are called to be followers of Christ, if we're called to become more like Jesus, which is what it means to be a Christian, then you and I will be people whose lives are characterized by forgiveness. So Dom and Bryony, when you go traveling, when your luggage gets lost by British Airways, you have to forgive them. <laughs> when things don't work out over the next 13 months in that idyllic, jolly that you're going for and you're asking us to pray for you for protection and that you won't have too good a time as you're away as you come across all sorts of different experiences god will ask you are you willing to forgive because you know what it is to be forgiven but as we think about forgiveness what are the different situations that you and i are facing 
as I've been talking for the last 15 minutes or so about forgiveness. Maybe there's a person that's come into your mind. Maybe there's a situation that actually is right at the forefront of your brain. You've been surprised at how you've started to feel. The unwillingness has started to come. But you don't know what happened, Dave. You don't know what they did. You don't know what they said. You don't know that it's not fair. That's true. But the choice is yours and the choice is mine, whether we'll forgive. I started with that illustration and that amazing story of Gilbert and Chondo who chose to forgive. But all the way through the history of the church, there have been examples of people who've been willing to forgive. In the Vietnam War, one of the iconic photographs was of a young girl called Phan Thi Kim Phuc. And she is the little girl who is naked, crying. Her village had just been bombed and napalmed by US planes. That photograph, amongst one or two others, came to symbolize the Vietnam War. About 30 years after that photograph was taken, Phan Thi was talking about her experience. And she happened to say in the course of her talk that if she ever met the pilot who had dropped the bombs on her village, she would forgive him. What she didn't know in the audience that night was a man called John Plummer, who had in fact ordered the airstrike on her village. He was no longer in the American Air Force. He was now a Methodist minister, leader of a church. And he didn't know that in the intervening years, Fanti had also become a Christian. At the end of her talk, John Plummer approached her and explained who he was and asked her to forgive him. He said, she looked at me and she saw my pain. And amongst many other words, she said, it's all right, I forgive. The person who will benefit most, if you choose to forgive, is you. There may be benefits for the other person, there may be benefits for your relationship with them, there may not. But if we choose to hold on to resentment, to grief, to bitterness, then the only loser is us. It might be really, really difficult. It might be difficult to forgive that person. It might be just like the brothers that we'll look at next week, that actually the person that is most difficult to forgive is yourself. It may be actually that the person that you're finding it really hard to forgive is God because of something that happened to you or to somebody that you love. But you see, the choice is yours and the choice is mine. Whether we hold on to that resentment, whether we hold on to that anger, whether we hold on to that bitterness, or whether we choose through forgiveness 
to release it. And by releasing those emotions, by releasing those feelings, by releasing that person, actually release ourselves. That's what the Christian faith is actually all about. That as God forgives us, he then calls us to forgive.